We're going to be in John 13, John 14 this morning, if you want to open there. Uh, the theme, obviously, it, here at Cedar Mill this month has been about hope. And I was thinking about hope this week in terms of introducing this, and I was reading John Ortberg, who has a chapter in one of his books entitled, Everybody Hopes. He says, we're all hopers. We're creatures who cannot stop wishing. We're four-leaf clover collectors. We wish upon a star. We make a wish before blowing out the birthday candles. We break the turkey wishbone to see who gets the larger part and gets their hopes fulfilled. Seems like hope is in our DNA. We're all carriers. And my guess is if all of us in our conversations this morning were to push just a little bit, there would be some hope that would come out. Maybe your hope today is for a mate or maybe for a family or maybe for your ship to come in, contract with a publisher or some relief from a long illness or the hope that an injustice you've experienced will be replaced with justice or maybe... Maybe for some, I'm sure for some, a hope that a son or daughter will find their way back home. I, I see this, hear this a lot. I know some of the pain. And uh, I think of a friend of mine this week who has gone to see his son. And we've been emailing back and forth. And this is what he wrote me two days ago. When I'm with my son, he's charming. He's intelligent. He's relaxed. But the moment we walk out the door, he's mentally incapacitated and we get nothing accomplished. Last night, I tossed and I turned, feeling at a complete loss of what to do. I just can't shake off my sense of parental responsibility. I can't shake off this hope. Uh, hope is, uh, again, it's, it's what we, it's what it's what gives us the energy to get up in the morning. It's what we sing about at Christmas, and for good reason, because so much of what we hope for in this world will eventually disappoint and wear out or give out or fall apart. But as we noted last week, and Pastor Dave underscored this, in Jesus, he is our ultimate hope because he brings, you remember, he brings used to happen in my church, too, when I preached. <laughs> he, he brings satisfaction. He's the bread of life, John chapter 6. But there's another reason why he is our deepest hope, and that's where we're going to go to this morning in John 13 and 14. But first, some context. So if you're familiar with the, the story in John, in John 13, Jesus gathers his disciples uh, in the upper room. It's really the first time in the whole gospel that he directly speaks to them, has a, a conference, if you will. And it sort of seems, it feels that it's a final briefing of sort. They've gathered with him in Jerusalem, and there's an air of hope. There's an air of expectation. He's come in. He's ridden in. The crowds have praised his name. And we know that the disciples have been posturing, jockeying, who's the alpha dog here, who's going to get the plum cabinet position. And so they're ready for Jesus to announce his kingdom and their positions. But then, if you know the story, Jesus does something completely contrary to what they expect. 
In John 13, 33, we read these words. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I'm telling you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, obviously, this immediately distresses them. This is not what they anticipated. It's, I was thinking about that feeling, and I was drawn back to a Christmas memory. I was a kid, and I remember my sister and I, we were with the relatives, it was Christmas Day. We were having a great time. I could hardly wait to get home to just enjoy the things that were given to us. And my folks left unannounced. It turned out they'd already made arrangements for us to stay with the relatives for the next week. I'm still dealing with the pain of it all. But it's, it's not here in this story that Jesus hadn't told them because we go back to, say, John 7, 33, John 8, 21. He had told them on different occasions that he was leave, leaving. But as we know, as we experience in our own lives, we have our own selective hearing. Right. We do this when told things we don't want to hear, like, since you're going to the garage, could you take out the trash? <laughs> or the dog threw up. Or there's a noise downstairs. Huh? What? You speaking to me? Uh, and so it was with the disciples. He, maybe he had told them, but it got lost in the, in the noise of it all, like an airport announcement. But here, there was no mistaking. He said it to them in a very clear way. I am leaving. And one imagines a, like a fog coming into the room, a hopelessness, a, a sense maybe even of despair, of heartbreak heart sickness that got down into the deepest interior. And so one by one, they started asking questions. So Peter starts it off in John 13, verse 36, when he says, so where are you going? And Jesus told him he couldn't come. And that wasn't enough. Peter is asking, so why can't I come with you? And Jesus can see this growing restlessness. He knows that we long for a place free from this harrowing experience of brokenness. A place where a sovereign Lord can say, it's safe here. So Jesus speaks these words, words that many of you are familiar with in John 14, verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, these are hopeful words, but, but it really only provokes more questions. So Thomas, ever the realist, asks this question here, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Now Thomas is confused. He's lost. It's like, uh, well, maybe he passed out maps and I, I wasn't there. Or he gave a GPS heading that uh, somehow I didn't get into my phone. The world, of course, needs Thomas. We need the Thomases who are willing to speak up, say what we're wondering 
Ask what we're afraid to ask. For we, many of us, like to be silent, nodding our heads, appearing we completely understand, even if we have no idea what the person is saying. It happens a lot in my classroom at seminary. But we just need someone to stop the conversation and ask, wait, can you, can you start over, explain exactly where you're going, and repeat how I can get there? It also, as we know, it takes courage, especially for men who don't want to ask for directions <laughs> on a journey. My wife and I have this. Some of you know what I'm going to say here. Yes, I know. I don't need a map. Thank you. I know where we're going. Well, my wife knows I'm completely lost. And in this moment, while maybe the others are lost as well, and Thomas raises the question, Jesus looks, I imagine, at Thomas right into his eyes, along with the rest of the disciples and turns a geographic question into a spiritual affirmation. In this moment, and this is where I'm going, Jesus gives them the reason why he is this profound hope. And so he says these words, again, very familiar words in verse 6. Jesus answered, I'm the, you know it, don't you? I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. And in these words, Jesus is declaring something we saw last week in John 6 with I am the bread. He uses this phrase, ego eimi, I, I am. It's an unmistakable description of the fact Jesus is, is God. And he does this seven times in the book of John. And here, perhaps, he gives his most memorable self-definition. I'm the way, without which there's no going. I'm the truth, without which there's no knowing. I'm the life, without which there is no living. These are great words, and we, yeah, we live on these words, but Jesus isn't finished. And what he says next is, for many, very offensive words. Because notice in verse 6, Jesus says, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The declaration is, is simple. It's absolute. It's unambiguous. There's no text I can think of in Scripture that is more bold, more clear. There's no text that, that admits of no compromise than this one. I think uh, our cabin up in uh, northeast Washington I like to ride to uh, the town several miles uh, uh, up the highway, and there's this, this sign that says Canadian border 27 miles. But then underneath in small language are these words. There are alternative routes, Highway 25 to the west, Highway 95 to the east. There's multiple ways to cross the border. But in this story here, Jesus isn't saying I'm the direct path. Jesus says, actually, what? I'm, I'm the only path. The route to heaven has only one way, one access to cross the border from earth to the Father's house. Now, my guess is, 
well, it's not a guess, I know for sure that this can be very offensive words, especially in today's culture. It's hard for many to accept this verse, maybe, maybe even perhaps for some of you. I mean, maybe Jesus is unique, but then isn't almost every religious figure? To say there's only one right way, there's only one truth, there's only one life, sounds, well, I'm sorry, sounds rather arrogant and elitist and narrow and intolerant. Reminds me when Oprah was rather big, part of her appeal was her generic spirituality that conforms easily to the pluralistic age. She once told her audience these words, perhaps you remember. One of the biggest mistakes we make is to believe there's only one way. There are, of course, there are many diverse paths to God, to a huge applause. Think of it perhaps as designer religion, designer God, an a la carte blend of religious concepts from karmic destiny to reincarnation. Now, on the academic side, there was a, a professor by the name of Marcus Borg here in Oregon, a progressive New Testament scholar that shared a similar sentiment. He wrote these words once. The enduring religions are all paths up the same mountain. Envision a mountain broad at the bottom, narrow at the top, the peak finally disappearing into air, space, emptiness. And at the bottom, the paths are farthest apart, but as the paths lead higher, they become closer together until they converge on the mountaintop. And then, of course, they disappear. And the place to which they lead, the mountaintop, is not heaven, but the sacred. Now, again, this kind of language plays well today, I think, in our culture, with mainstream Western culture that especially wants a religious autonomy, God on their terms, God according to their authority, a streamline, non-contradictory, choose your own, whatever works for you, Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I was in San Diego, and I was in a, a crazy shirt store, and I was looking at some, some clothes, and I got to, it was a quiet evening, so there was no one in the, in the shop. So we began to talk about a lot of things, got to know each other a little bit, Somehow it came up that I had been involved uh, with religion, a pastor, a seminary professor. I always notice how people suddenly get real religious then. Uh, but, uh, but in this case, he said, well, you know, hey, here's my take, my philosophy. Of course, it was exactly the same thing. He said, you know, all, road, all roads lead to the top. So you've heard this, and the question is, so how do we respond? How did I respond? Oh my gosh, that's a profound thought. Uh, now, Ashley, what I've discovered is that most who say all <clears throat> religions are the same are generally not followers of any faith, uh, at least something they would die for. And yes, there are some points of contact, there's some ethical overlaps. But no matter how much you try to merge Jesus' way with other ways, shape and squeeze and force-fit Jesus to accommodate to universalistic assumptions or claim all religions are variant streams of one transcendent source, I can't get away from the words in John 14, 6, and you can't either. 
it would only lead, frankly, to hopelessness. For in reality, in reality, at least been my observation, and I've spent a lot of time in India and the Middle East and different places and exposed to lots of philosophies and religions, but I've discovered this, that the most roads lead people right over the precipice. So the question is, and it's a fair question, what gives Jesus the right to say these words that he is the only passport, the only visa, if you will, the only access, the only sole savior worthy of our highest worship, which we've come to do today, the one who meets our deepest hopes? What gives him the right to say that? Well, I hope you know at least have some idea, because frankly, this is the question more and more we must be prepared to answer. And here are three things I'd like to just share with you that I think answers John 14, 6. First of all, only Jesus came as God in the flesh. This is, in fact, the most essential characteristic of Christianity. This is what separates our faith from every other faith. It is, by the way, I think you know this, it's the very definition of Christmas. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation. God came in the flesh. But if your neighborhood's like mine, you would think it's Santa's Toyland. There's, there seemingly has gotten lost in the whole message of Christmas, the incarnation. But no other religion makes anything approximating this claim that God, without sacrificing his divine nature, became fully human. I don't know anyone else except Jesus. Others may claim to be ascended masters, but only one claims to be descended God, God in the flesh. Others have claimed to be sources of information about God, but only Jesus is the revelation of God. Only Jesus has made God known, in fact, John 1.18 says he has literally exegeted him. So to Thomas, Jesus goes on to say in this chapter, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Thomas, you're wanting to see the Father. You're looking at him. This is the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul made the same statement. He is the image of the invisible God. So the point here is that Jesus is more than a prophet, though Muslims would like to say that, and he is a prophet, but he's far more than a prophet, more than a priest, more than a sage, more than a king, more than an idea, more than a philosophy. He alone is the way to get to God because he alone is the way God came to us. There's something else here, if that's not enough. And the second is that only Jesus paid the price for our failure. So when I was talking to this uh, uh, young man in the shop, I said, well, maybe all ways lead to the top, you might say, but I don't know anyone who's died for me, paid the price for my failures, except Jesus, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Krishna, nor the goddess of Wicca, nor black elk, nor anyone. No one else has made a way to God. 
opened a previously unopened access. No one else has torn the curtain. If they have, I'd, I'm all ears, but I don't know of anyone. So why, why would they be considered yet one more access? I like how James Edwards puts it in Is Jesus the Only Savior? Would a God who provided for the salvation of the world in a unique, costly, and sacrificial death of his son be willing to accept any other means, any lesser means of salvation? Of course not. This is why the disciples, that why the disciples then shortly after his death, paying the price for our failure, stood before the powers of the day, emperor worship, mystery cults, Jewish religion, and at the cost of their very lives declared, these words, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. And by the way, it's interesting, isn't it? I was thinking about this driving over this morning, that when you look at the early church and you look at the book of Acts, they were never referred to as Christians. They were referred to as, do you remember? The way. This was what they referred to early Christians as. Ah, the way. They must have got John 14, 6 really down. And Paul to the church at Ephesus said there's only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Now, if that's not enough, how about maybe one more? Only Jesus rose from the grave. No one else conquered death and rose to sit at the highest seat of authority in heaven. I don't know anyone else. Only Christ crossed the shore from death to life assuring us that he has opened this door. He is the access. Everyone else remains in their graves. Now, if this is not true, as Scripture tells us, then our faith is worthless. That's why Easter matters so much to us. It's hopeless. We're just an episode between two oblivions. It would be like coming to Good Friday service and calling it a weekend. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We might as well party like there's no tomorrow. We might as well go to Jack in the Box and get the new triple bacon buttery Jack. I mean, <laughs> why not? For, for this life is all there is. There is no hope. There is no access to heaven. There is no heaven. There is no hope. But Jesus did rise. And so, and so what do we do with all this? Well, a couple things come to mind. And one is, I think it's more and more time the church stands by its core convictions. And in a very unapologetic way, says these words of John 14, 6. It's not to somehow declare, hey, we're this exclusivistic group. Sorry, you're not in. Because the same exclusive way is declared by a God who, for God so loved the world. So Jesus is saying, all are invited 
um, because he loves everyone in this world. There's no place for the church to ever have an exclusivity about it. But at the same time, while I say that, the church must, on the other hand, stand passionately for its core convictions. And, 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 and again, not apologize. Some years ago, I, well, I used to go to Syria from time to time. I love the Syrian people. It breaks my heart. It should break your heart what's gone on in Syria over these years. I used to go to Damascus. I used to go up to Aleppo. There's a little town, uh, Sueda, that I used to go to. It, just this little church, and, and they just were so desperate to be encouraged about their core convictions. But I remember uh, one particular experience. I was driving back to Lebanon, and we, stayed with the fa we always stayed with the family on the border. And I remember uh, the man, Nabil, who didn't have really a lot of faith, but we were sitting around the table, and he looked at me, and he said, why do you do this? And I said, do what? And he said, why do you come over here? Why do you upset things? In other words, just let everybody stay in their own little box and uh, keep the status quo, keep the peace, please the government. Let everyone go their own way. But I realized in looking at John 14, 6, well, I, I, I don't have that option. And, and also, because if I just let every people go their own way, I'm letting everybody go their own hopelessness. I mean, why, why wouldn't I? Because most of the people I encounter over here are trying to earn their way to heaven. And there is no real sure hope they're going to get there. So we declare hope. Uh, and we declare uh, Jesus. So one of the things from this text is we have, to, we have to declare with great love and great conviction our faith in this great God. But then secondly, I guess, not I guess, I would say this too, that if he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the access, well then, every day we ought to be going through that door and taking advantage of his availability, right? Uh, because the door is always open, 24-7. Well, let me pray. Dear God, we give thanks for... We give thanks that you have, by your grace, allowed us to know the way. And it's not a, a line on a map. It's you're the way. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have allowed us to know the truth in a day of fake news and false truths. We're in a sea of untruths. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that truth by nature is narrow, and you are the truth. And we thank you, Lord, that we have life because you bring life. And so, Lord, I pray that the church in these days will passionately love people, but firmly stand by their convictions. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Come to the tables, the tables are open, where we remember um, the fact that he died for us.
And uh, you're all invited to come to the table, and then when you're ready, take the bread and the cup.